was as shown in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we ask out of that grace already shown, uh, would you continue to bless us by now allowing us to hear you, allowing us to hear your word and for it to strike deep into our hearts. But only you can do that and we look to you that you may renew our minds, change our hearts and transform our lives that we might please you and give glory to you. Please help us, Father. Amen. Now you can see that the topic we're looking at is money. Okay, we're talking about money today. That's one of the topics. Now I want you to note who Jesus is talking to right at the beginning of the chapter. He's addressing, uh, not these new people who have come in, he's, he's addressing his disciples. Okay, He's addressing people who follow him. Now there may be some of you here who you might not call yourself a disciple of Christ. You might not be a Christian. You uh, might not be sure exactly where you stand with regards to Jesus. And so we are talking about a tricky topic, you know, money. And if you're not a disciple of Jesus, you're not sure where you stand, I want to say this right at the very beginning. Don't let anything I say or whatever Jesus says here from this passage uh, make you somehow think that I or we are asking you for your money. Okay, we are not. Okay, we are not. If you're not a disciple of Jesus, don't think that, okay? Because he is addressing his disciples. But as we see, as we'll see, there's a crowd there and they are listening in. And one of the reasons why Jesus addresses this topic to his disciples and have others listen in, because Jesus' teaching on money gives us an insight into who he is, what he stands for, and what he's all about. So, uh, four implications, verses 1 to 13. Now, rich men in those days would have a manager manage their wealth for him. Okay, this uh, manager or steward would be a cross between a, a COO and a CFO. And everything that the, the manager did on behalf of the rich man would be legal and binding. And so this particular rich man calls his manager to him one day and says, hey, you've been, you've been wasting my resources, you've been, you've been uh, dishonest, I'm going to fire you. Okay? And so this manager thinks to himself, oh no, I, I'm, I'm too old to uh, do manual work and I have too much dignity to try and beg. I need to do something to secure my future employment. So as we've read, we see what he does. He calls the debtors, the people that owe his master money, and he removes a ridiculous amount of money from what they owe the master. Now, at the end of this, Jesus, through the parable, comments. He praises, he praises this dishonest manager. Look at what he says in verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. Now, why? I'm sure every one of us, as we were looking at this passage, we're thinking, what is there to comment? Why did Jesus tell this morally dodgy parable? I mean, the guy, the guy stole from his master. Now, some people try and 
lessen uh, the you know, morally dodgy part by saying what the manager did was simply remove the interest that he would have earned. You know, the commission that he would have earned, he, he removed that. But that's not how it works. Okay? Because the amount is too great. How can, how can the manager earn such a big interest? No, no, no. Jesus calls this manager dishonest. If you are simply removing his commission, then that's you know, not really dishonest. But he was actually stealing. He was actually taking away from the master. He was using what was in his charge at this moment in light of the future. So the question is why? Why does Jesus use such a morally dodgy parable? Because he wanted us to see in all that was wrong, in all that was wrong with what this man did, what this manager did, there was one thing he did which was wise and one thing he did which was right. He used what was in his charge now to secure his future. So, the reason why Jesus does that is because he wants us to see clearly what was right. And he puts what was right, what was wise, in the midst of all that's wrong, so that we can see clearly, yes, this is the one thing that's commendable. Using what we have now, what's in our charge now, for the future. And so, the first implication that Jesus draws from this, look at verse 9 with me. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcome into eternal dwellings. This is the first implication or application that Jesus draws from this. And he has told us, right, even worldly people, even secular people, know that it is wise to invest money now into the future for something that is of greater value. Right? If even secular people know that, then what about the sons of light? What about disciples of Jesus? Well, we know that there is nothing. There is no treasure, no material treasure on earth, no investment on earth that will last forever. We must invest in eternity. Now the distinctive thing about Luke's Gospel is in Luke, Jesus keeps talking about possessions and wealth and money. And you remember when we were in Luke chapter 12, he told a parable of this guy who built barns and tried to store up things and then God comes to him and says, you fool, you're just investing in this life now, you fool. And so if it's foolish to just invest in this life now, Jesus is teaching us here in chapter 16 that we must invest in eternity because that's where things will last. Nothing here will last no property, no electronic gadget, no company, nothing here will last. Only eternity. Things that are of eternal value will remain forever. And so it is very wise to invest in that which will last forever. But you see, Jesus wants to really help us. He wants to really help us see this. Because eternity, I mean, this... this Heaven, this concept of eternity, things lasting forever, can be such an abstract concept. And so notice the thing that Jesus singles out about eternity. 
using our money now to gain a mansion, to gain the fastest car in heaven, to gain a title in heaven? No. What does he say? To gain friends. Pang Yao, Yo, BFF. You know, best friends forever. Gain that. Because it is people who will last forever. Now there is this song that whenever I listen to it uh, will bring tears to my eyes. And it is a song that I think fits appropriately to what Jesus is trying to teach her. And it's a song that uh, um, I can't remember the title. Okay, but, but it's a song where the singer says he has a dream. Okay, and he dreamt he went to heaven. And in, his, and in his dream, when he's in heaven, he sees his Christian friend. Okay, maybe you. You, you. Okay, he sees his Christian friend. And he sees this young man come, walking towards his Christian friend. And the young man says, you used to teach my Sunday school. And every week before class would start, you would say a prayer. And one day when you said that prayer, I asked Jesus to be my Lord. And then another person came to that Christian friend. And he said, remember that day when some missionaries came to your church? They showed you pictures, they showed you the work that they were doing. They, it, it made you cry when you saw the needs and the plight. And even though you didn't have much money, you gave it anyway. And the guy said, Jesus took the gift you gave. And that's why I'm in heaven today. And the chorus goes, thank you. Thank you for giving to the Lord. I am alive that was changed. Thank you for giving to the Lord. But Jesus here is, is turning it the other way. Thank you for giving to yourself. Thank you for investing in yourself. Because in investing your worldly wealth now, here you are going to be gaining friends. People who will come up to you and thank you for investing in their lives that because of that, they are now in heaven sharing that eternal relationship with you. So that's the first implication. Using worldly wealth to gain BFF. Best friends forever. The second implication comes out of verses 10 and 11. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? So what's the little and what's the much? Well, the little, of course, refers to our worldly wealth here. And the much, our treasures in heaven. So in a developed world where so many of us are prosperous, we can tend to think of our worldly wealth as a big thing, as a big deal. But no matter how rich you are, and some of you here are very rich, even if you are as rich as Steve Jobs or Bill Gates, Jesus still says that's little. I've entrusted the little to you. Can I trust you with the much, the treasures of heaven? And so the point is to seek to be faithful to the worldly wealth that God has entrusted to you. And of course, he's already told us how. To be faithful by investing it into eternity. 
Now, some of us here might be going, Amen! You know, that's right. Now, if only I had $1 million, I would do that. If only I was really rich, I, I would be the most generous rich person in the church. Now, I'm sure you recognize that such talk is cheap. Anybody can say that. How do we know you will really do that? Oh, there's a test. Jesus says it here. Are you being faithful with what you already have? Now, people are getting uncomfortable, right? I can see you're looking down, looking at your Bible, even though I'm not referring to the text. Because nobody likes. Now, I know, Singaporeans, you know, nobody likes being told what to do with their money, right? And now, notice, huh? I'm just a messenger, okay? So don't, don't put your hatred on me. Just a messenger. Nobody likes being told uh, what to do with their money, but this leads us on to the next implication. Verse 12. Verse 12. And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? In the parable and in the implication that Jesus has just drawn out, he makes it clear we are just stewards. We are just stewards. The manager was just a steward and Jesus praised him for the wise way in which he used what was in his charge for a temporary amount of time, how he used that to secure a future for himself. We are just stewards. The money you have is not yours. If there is a God, and it is a God who has given us everything, then He is the one who has entrusted what we have to us. It is not yours. Okay, turn to your neighbor and say, It's not yours. Go. It is so inbuilt into our system, right? So inbuilt into our system that even now some of you are uncomfortable. Right? Even now, you're uncomfortable. All that I work for, all that I've saved hard for, are you telling me it's not mine? Yes, it's not yours. Because if there is a God, and it is a God who in the Bible teaches us clearly our every breath comes from Him then the fact that we are alive, I mean, in order to make money, being alive helps, right? Who, who has given you life? God. But you can say, yes, I've worked hard. I've saved hard. But who is the one who gave you those skills and abilities such that companies were willing to hire you? God. And there's yet another thing as well. Even if you are alive and healthy and you work hard, but you are born in the middle of the Amazon jungle in this tribe. Even if you are the cleverest person there, you, will, you still cannot own a house and a car. God is the one who determines our circumstances. So the reason why the life and the skills that He gives us can be uh, rewarded with such ridiculous amounts of money is because he has placed us in this situation of prosperous Singapore with multiple opportunities. God is the one who has given us all these things. He has entrusted 
this wealth to us. You know what the implication of that is? If all that we have belongs to God, if it's not ours, and if God has told us, made it plain in His Word, what as stewards we are to do with it, then if we are not doing that, then it's not, it's not just a lack of generosity, it is robbery. If all that we have belongs to God and He has told us how He wants us to use it, if we don't, it's not just stinginess, it is robbing from God, it is thievery, it is stealing from Him. And this was the charge that God laid on His people in Malachi chapter 3, verse 8. Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offering. Now the tithe is the 10% that's given to God. And so, that's the uh, biblical guideline. In the New Testament, there is uh, not so much an emphasis on the exact proportion. Uh, but the New Testament, as we've seen here, emphasizes the principle of being generous and investing into eternity. You see, Jesus is a wise teacher. He knows that you can't really argue. You can't, I mean, you can't argue with him, right? <laughs> Who can argue with what he's just said? But he knows the reason why many of his disciples, why many of us here, why we struggle with truly hearing Him and obeying His Word is because the heart of the matter is that it is a matter of the heart. And so he says the last implication in verse 13. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus says, you cannot. But there are so many of us here who are trying to prove him wrong. We are going, look Lord, look at me, I can, I can, look. Jesus says, you cannot. And do you know why you cannot? Because you see, when we want more money, why are we in danger of serving it? Why are we in danger of wanting more of it? Because money is not just pieces of paper. Right, if all that we're talking about is you know, monopoly money in a game, then yeah, take it or leave it, lah, right? But money represents something. Money, because of its ability to do things, its power, we actually serve money by asking money to give us hope. We serve money by looking to money to give us security. We serve money by asking money to give us significance. But God says, money cannot do that. You are asking money to bear a weight that it cannot hold. Because He knows only He can meet the deepest desires of our hearts. Only He can give us the hope and the significance and the security that we really need. And so He says to us, you must trust Me and Me alone. You cannot be divided in this matter. You must come to Me alone for that hope security and significance only God can do that but the question is how is it possible how is it possible that God in his holiness and majesty 
should want to do that for us, who are his enemies and rebels, who have rejected him and given him uh, nothing but you know our fists shaking, shaking in his face. Why, why would he want to do that? Because Jesus wasn't just a steward. He actually owned what he had, but he gave all that away. Jesus, though he was rich, became poor so that we could be rich. He gave away all that he had so that he could come and win friends to himself forever. And it is because of what he has done that God, that we have access to this God that we can find in him our hope of security, of significance. And in knowing that, Jesus is saying, Invest what I've entrusted to you to win friends for yourselves. So that's the four implications. Now we're running, <coughs> we're running out of time, so I will skip the, the middle part called zero change. But basically there what's happening is there are people who are listening in on what Jesus is saying and these are the Pharisees who are trying to serve both God and money. These are the Pharisees who are trying to justify themselves by keeping the law and sneering at the teaching of Jesus. They, they, they sneered. They, they put down the teaching of Jesus. And so Jesus tells the parable of the rich man and Lazarus as a response to them. So Jesus says in verse 19, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. Now, just from this one line, Jesus wants us to know that this man was strikingly rich. You know why? Because he's wearing purple. Okay? And in those days, in order to get the purple dye, okay, they had to find very rare snails. Okay? And from those snails, extract the purple dye. And uh, Jesus tells us this man was wearing underwear. Okay? In those days, only the rich wore underwear. Okay, so I can see some of you in purple today. Huh? And I'm sure you're wearing underwear. Okay, so these are the people who are really rich. Okay? <laughs> now, the other character in the story could not be more different. Verse 20. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now notice that Jesus specifically says the beggar was laid at the rich man's gate. Now, why was that so? Well, because in those days, there was no... Uh, shelter for the homeless, there was no charitable organizations helping the poor. No, what people did when they saw a beggar or a poor person was that they would lay them at the gate of the rich because they understood the rich had both the resources and therefore the responsibility to care for the poor. And so he was laid at the rich man's gate. Now the picture given of this uh, poor man, of Lazarus, is really an appalling picture of a man who had absolutely nothing. Right? His body covered with sores, and he would just lie there, and only the dogs would come and give him comfort by licking his sores. 
And what he survived on was the scraps that the rich man did not want. See, in those days, there was no you know, tissue or napkin. When the rich man finished eating his meal and then you know, there's all this gravy and food on his beard, he would just take a piece of bread and wipe his mouth and then throw. And the, rich, the poor man survived on those scraps. But as we look at what Jesus says of these two men, he mentions something that the poor man had, which the rich man did not have. Right? It's uh, quite profound and quite easily missed. The poor man had a name. This is the only character in all of Jesus' parables where he gives the character a name. Lazarus. And Lazarus actually means he whom God helps. Jesus wants us to understand that though this poor man was probably despised by those who walked past him and saw him every day, it was not the case with God. This was a man who was known by God and one that God helped. Now, after that brief introduction, all the characters by the fourth verse are dead. And this is the first reality. Everyone dies. Right, people say right, you, there are two things you cannot escape from in life, uh, taxes and death. But there are some people who do escape from paying taxes. But no one, no one escapes from death. Death has a very good record. 100%. Right, one out of one. Die. Just this week, I was talking to a student of mine who last week had to bury her cousin. His cousin was 19 years old. And he didn't die from some you know, accident that, you know, just being in the wrong place at the wrong time. The, the, the cousin who was 19 years old died from cancer. Everyone dies. That is the first reality that makes what Jesus says of this story true. Verse 22. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. The second reality that Jesus brings home to us through this parable is the reality of hell. Hell is a reality. Heaven and hell are realities. And hell, some people like to believe, right? Yes, 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 I believe there is a hell. But I also believe there's no one there. No, not true. The only reason that Jesus' story can work is that there is a hell and that there are people there and hell is a place of great torment where God's justice and judgment is being executed. Now can you imagine what sort of place the torment that hell must be like if even someone dipping his finger in water and just just I mean, two or three drops that will come out from that finger. Even that will give relief. What sort of place hell must be? Hell is a real place 
of real torments. Now, let me give a warning here. A superficial reading of this parable will make us think that, okay, the poor man, because he had nothing, went to heaven, and the rich man, because in life he had everything, now goes to hell. No, no. That's a superficial reading. Because in Jesus addressing the Pharisees, he's already told them, you are justifying yourselves. You are trying to get into heaven by keeping the law. But no, after John, there comes the good news of the kingdom of God being proclaimed. And, and the Pharisees were sneering. They didn't believe Jesus. They did not believe the word of salvation he brought. And so the reason why Lazarus is in heaven is because Lazarus has believed that word. And the reason why this rich man, like the audience is talking to the Pharisees, who are rich, is because they are, he has sneered at the teaching of Jesus and refused to accept the gospel. And so friends, this is the third reality that Jesus brings to us. We determine our eternal destiny by the choice we make here. Can you imagine a dot? A small dot, okay? small dot, and out of this dot, coming out of the dot, a long line. How long is this line? It's a line that goes on forever. The line represents eternity. The dot, our time on earth. What's What's more significant? Eternity. What's really insignificant compared to the unending line of eternity? The dot. But as insignificant as that dot is, what we choose to do with the teaching of Jesus in that dot determines where our line will be forever. What we do in this life is echoed in eternity. So the rich man is in agony. He calls out for mercy, but there will be no mercy for him. And you see, the reply of Father Abraham to this man is deadly conclusive. You will receive no comfort where you are. And more importantly, where you are is where you will stay. You see, the sign that hangs over hell it's a sign that says, too late. Too late. Within that one dot, we had all the opportunities to hear and to value highly the teaching of Jesus. And that was a window of opportunity that will not always be open. And when it is closed, it cannot be open again. So we must listen to the good news of Jesus. We must value highly his teaching now and here. And so the rich man knows that for him it is finished. Game over. But he wants to warn those for whom the window is still open. And so he says in verse 27, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house. For I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, 
But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. And this is the fourth reality that Jesus tells us. That in Moses and the prophets, there is a clear and compelling witness of the word of salvation. Listen to them and we will hear this word. You see, that's what Jesus is doing. His, his audience are these Pharisees. Pharisees who know their Bibles, who know about what Moses and the prophets are teaching. And he's saying to them, listen, listen. It's, it's as if Jesus is saying, before you is standing Moses and the prophets standing in one line and, and Moses and the prophets, they're all pointing to Jesus and saying, He's the one. Trust Him. He is the climax and fulfillment of all of God's promises. Listen to Him. He is the one who will save you. And Jesus is saying, Don't think that you need some miracle to happen before your eyes. Then you can believe. Some of us think that, yes, 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 the Bible is just words. If God is really true, let Him show me. But do you know that when Jesus raised Lazarus out of the tomb after four days, when Jesus Himself rose from the dead, there were people who saw that, but still remained in unbelief. Moses and the prophets, the Bible is sufficient witness. It is able to show us, it is able to point out to us, it is able to clearly compel us to see that Jesus is the one who will come and save us. So if you are not a Christian, so if you are someone here and you are not really sure where you stand, hear what Jesus is saying. Have you looked at what the Bible is saying honestly and objectively? Or is it just, you know, your mind is just filled with uh, presumptions and assumptions of what the Bible might have said, could have said? Jesus is very clear. The Bible testifies to Him. Do yourself a favor and with a Christian friend, look objectively and honestly. See what it says for yourself. And maybe you will, like many of us here, who call ourselves Christians, who are disciples of Christ, we have come to the Bible and we have seen. Not just with our physical eyes, but we have seen with our hearts that Jesus did come. He is the Son of God who lived and died in our place, on our behalf, and who has risen again to new life. We, we, in looking at the Bible, we have come to see with the eyes of our heart that this is true. He has done this. And that is the way to be saved and to be reconciled to God forever. And you know what, brothers and sisters? You know what it means when we say we believe this? If we, if we say we believe that Jesus is the Son of God and He has died and He has risen again and it is a new resurrection life, that it is a life that proves there is 
life beyond the grave. There is this new life in heaven, in the new heavens and earth with God. If we say we believe Jesus rose from the dead and we say we believe in this, Jesus is challenging us. If you say you believe this, if you believe that life on earth now is just a dot and then in heaven is this unending line, then invest. Be radically generous. Be self-sacrificially generous with the money I've given you. My money that I've given to you to use. Invest it in eternity. Invest it in people. Invest it in the work of mission organizations. Invest it in gospel work so that people, as they have opportunity to hear the gospel, might in God's mercy see with their hearts that Jesus is indeed the Son of God and also come and believe all that He is. And we will have friends in eternity. May God help us.